Hello world, the year is 2023 and it is January. My name is Rory and I live and work in the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is located in the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations. I'm a newcomer, but I love this community and I want to see it through the eyes of my neighbors. Last time, I interviewed my friend Robin who lives at the birdhouse. In this second episode, I'm interviewing another bird, my friend Noah. We chat about how he came to live here, what he does in the downtown east side, and I ask him about his perspectives on Christianity, racism, and the way forward. Just a word of warning, some sensitive subjects such as residential schools do come up. So please keep that in mind and skip ahead if you need to. I hope you enjoy our conversation. It's ready. I've prepped before, so as you're gonna, uh, as you're coming down the stairs, just bear in mind. It's <laughs> yeah. Do you want to start? Sure. Who is Noah? In in your own words, how would you describe yourself? I think words are a good place to start. Um, I love words. Um, I um, really enjoy diving into the meanings of words and the histories of words and, um, and enjoy the way that a well-chosen word can uh, really heighten a narrative. Um, my love of words led me to study poetry in my, uh, in my undergraduate. I studied Latin and Greek poetry was my main focus. Um, and um, I am now in uh, graduate school, uh, graduate theological school called Regent, um, where a lot of a lot of what I'm studying has to do with words in scripture, um, has to do with with words in in what I would term the word. Um, so I guess in that regard, I'm I'm a big word fan as well. Um, whether that be words that are lyrics to songs, a big big fan of music. Um, or whether it be diving into diving into uh, God's word, um, I am an American, which uh, gives me sort of my own unique flavor here. Being in Canada, we'll address that I think in a bit. Yeah. Um, and I am living here on the downtown east side. I moved out here about a year and I'm coming up on a year and a half out here. Okay. So you're an American. Can you tell me a little bit about the place that you're from and what it's like and how you came to be in Vancouver, Canada today, sitting on a couch talking to me? Yeah, so I am from a university town in Michigan called Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I grew up there um, and lived there until I moved out here. I did my undergraduate studies there. Um, it is... Um, a highly educated town. It has the most master's degree per capita uh, in the U.S. and it's a very arrogant place. Um, <laughs> I I I really enjoy I really enjoy the culture there, but um, it can be very full of itself. It can be very certain that its solutions are the right solutions. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of things that I really agree with that people hold positions on in in Ann Arbor, but the attitude with which we do it is not always my favorite. 
a lot of why I moved out here to Canada was, well, the reason I moved out here was for graduate school. Um, and a big part of, uh, of the motivation there is, um, is sort of kind of a palate cleanse. Are you familiar with the, um, are you familiar with the term nose blind? Um, is it like when you are in, let's say, a room that smells a certain way and you stay there long enough, you don't really notice the smell anymore? Yeah, so eventually you don't notice that smell anymore. And if you walk away and come back, you can go, oh, it stinks in here. But right. until you leave, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. um, one, of the, one of the big reasons I moved to Canada is that, I don't know if you've heard about this, but the church in the U.S., it's kind of done some messed up things, um, and uh, and particularly some messed up things around uh, the topic of race. Well, I, I want to jump in and say <laughs> that the church in Canada has also done some pretty messed up things around, you know, issues of race as well. But maybe messed up things of you know, like just the specifics. Of yeah. So uh, the uh, the the reason I left the U.S. was because I have grown up in an environment where it's very easy to become nose blind to, um, to the issues and struggles around spirituality and race and the, the work of the church in the States. And not to, not to sanitize what's happened in Canada, but it is different than what's happened in the States in many ways. In many ways there are similarities, but it's a new environment for me. So when I come here, I'm able to experience it with a bit more fresh of an eye and I'm hoping that that will allow me, if I ever return to the States, to have also a fresh eye to things that, that I otherwise uh, was blinded to growing up. So a big motivation in coming here was to, um, was to get out of my own comfort zone um, as it regards the role and place of the church in the history of oppression and uh, racial dynamics in the West. So you chose Canada you chose Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Why the downtown east side? Um, I have always felt called towards people who are, um, particularly in the church context, just given, given that's where the conversation has been, particularly towards people who are on the edge of sort of belonging in community, but who um, might not be integrated in so far. Um, and and that, extends, that extends socially as well. Um, I, I just have a, yeah, I have a heart for people who are on the margins and waiting to come, waiting to come in. Um, I got connected to the downtown east side through um, a couple of friends. Um, one is um, one of my professors at school, um, who was a pastor down here for, for quite some time, um, who got me connected with the church I'm currently working with, and another friend is my friend Chris, who works with a um, organization down here called Jacob's Well that um, really works on just providing a place to develop friendships and relationships with people who might not otherwise have, have good opportunities to make those kinds of connections. So between the two of them, they got me connected with this neighborhood and I just instantly fell in love. It has more life than any neighborhood I've lived in in Vancouver, Ann Arbor, anywhere else in the world. Um, so I, I really have been quite happy, quite happy here. Yeah, I feel the same way. I just, the downtown east side is, is unique and colorful and warm and human. And 
I, I love this community so much. Have you lived, um, have you, you've lived elsewhere in Vancouver, correct? Yep. Okay. Yeah. I lived in Shaughnessy for a year. Ooh. Yeah. Um, right. Shaughnessy is a very wealthy neighborhood. Um, yeah. I was trying to get out of a basement suite and I moved into what was supposed to be an artist's house in Shaughnessy and mm -hmm. it just ended up being kind of an overpriced scam. Um, but within the first day of moving here to the downtown east side, I had more conversations with neighbors than I'd had that whole year of living in Shaughnessy. So just to give an idea of how sterile the rest of Vancouver can feel at times. Right. And really, I mean, that's a lot of the other neighborhoods I've lived in, whether it be here or in the States. My first two years here in Vancouver were the first two years of COVID. Well, I guess kind of the two big years of COVID. And it would have been very easy had COVID not happened for me to fall into some, um, to fall into friendships with people that were easy to get along with and didn't challenge me in any ways. Mm -hmm. um, probably not people who all lived around the same area, What's been really great about being here is that this community is, we're all within a, you know, five or six block radius of one another, and we deal with the challenges of, of living day in, day out with one another. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to live in this neighborhood and also in the birdhouse? What does a day-to-day -day look like? Yeah, so I'm still in school, mm -hmm. and so when school is in session, the day-to-day feels hectic. You know, busing out to UBC is about um, an hour-long bus ride. I usually try and cram in reading and homework on the way. Um, when I'm here, it's kind of a hodgepodge depending on the day. We hosted like a prayer and worship night on Thursdays. For, for my first maybe five or six months here, I was running, I was helping to run a community dinner on Tuesday nights at various locations. Mm -hmm. um, we've had through the church last semester, we had a um, we had a workshop bringing in some local indigenous leaders who were helping educate us um, around their experiences with the church. Day to day, it's not super predictable. What has been predictable have been the people that show up. We have a lot of people who will have sort of seasons of coming to the house a lot. We'll have um, folks who will come by three, four days in a row, eat dinner with us, you know, chat with us. And one of the things I've really had to learn, I'm not naturally very hospitable. It's, it's something I've really had to learn and I've really been grateful for my housemates, um, particularly Jenny and Michaela, have really taught me a lot about what it means to host, what it means to open up a home to people, what it means to be available. And those, those are things that are not necessarily my skill set. So it's been a great learning journey in that regard. I think you're getting pretty good at it. Thanks. Thanks. Do you have any stories or favorite moments to share about life in this house and in this neighborhood? Oh, man. For someone who likes words, I'm, I'm not a great storyteller. One of the best things that we've had in this house was last May was one of our housemate Jenny's birthday. And Jenny's lived, I think Jenny will probably on, be on this podcast at some point. Oh, Jenny's I lived- I really in, hope so. Yeah, yeah. She'll, she'll have amazing stories to tell. It feels fitting that my story would be about something that Jenny organized. So Jenny has been part of this community for over 10 years. And for her birthday last May, we cleared out a portion of the alley next to our house, just, just picked up, you know, whatever litter was, was around there. And we put down 
some chairs and uh, a big rug and put some lights up and got some speakers and we just threw a dance party for the neighborhood in the in the alley and people stopped by um, people danced with us um, there were some ways in which it felt like being a little kid playing you know street hockey in a cul-de-sac where a car would come by and everyone would yell car and we'd all have to move away <laughs> um, and we had projectors up with lights so that we could do some shadow some shadow art on the walls and it was really great and one of the things I loved was um, there were a couple people who walked by who uh, are um, either part of the street community or underhoused, mm -hmm. and they saw that we were having a party. Uh, I think Jenny quickly invited them to come join us, and they said, okay, okay, we'll be there in five minutes, but we got to run to the store and buy some chips because we don't want to, we don't want to come to the party without bringing something. And it was, oh, it was so oh. special. It was so special for someone um, to feel like they could come and partake and be part of something like that, but also to want to participate in a meaningful way. And I think that's been, that's been a really beautiful thing that I've seen with the communities that, that are thriving here in the downtown east side is that they really offer an opportunity not just to nominally belong, but to participate as someone who is, is fully in from the, from the very first moment. Yeah, I think a lot of people have so much love to give. They they just need, you know, the chance to show it and to, you know, get connected. It's it's wonderful what comes out of those opportunities. Yeah. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit here and kind of talk about um, what, what you've learned since moving into the neighborhood mm -hmm. and how that's interacted or influenced what you do at school as a theology student. It's It's been a difficult process of learning. Thankfully, people have been really patient with me. Um, I think as a white American settler in this neighborhood, it's been, it's been hard to know what, it's hard to know the magnitude of your own ignorance. Hmm. And so there are times when I'll find myself asking a question and realize that the the presumptions of the questions themselves make the question almost unaskable. We were at a ceremony, a naming ceremony for the renaming of Trutch Street in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And the ceremony was put on um, by the Musqueam people. And they were renaming the street because Trutch was Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, a horribly racist old man. And so they were renaming the street to um, Musqueam Awesome, mm -hmm. um, which means um, Musqueam View. It's mm -hmm. the street goes towards um, towards their land and we were invited to participate in the in the ceremony but the participation was we found out once we were there was simply to come and be witnesses and to be present and to recognize what was happening as people who are now living in this place as well but when we got there we showed up a little bit early and we asked what we could help with it turned out that showing up early and asking what we could help with were actually, um, in the context of where we were, were actually offensive things to do. And right. so, um, and so it, it's, that just sort of relays the, the sort of level and depth of the kind of ignorance that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that I'm working with. Um, but it, it, it has been really, really informative for me in a lot of ways. In, in the States, particularly where I'm from, the history of the transatlantic slave system in the U.S., is is so at the forefront of thoughts and conversations around um, 
racial strife and, and oppression that um, I think I can say correctly that all growing up, the idea of even talking about um, the indigenous experience in, in the United States and Canada um, was, never came up. Maybe, maybe a, a cursory reference in a history class, um, but it was not something that we talked about, it was not something that we thought about. And so coming here, it's, it really has been like working with a blank canvas. Uh, I knew nothing about the residential school systems, never heard of it before I moved to Canada. I knew nothing about whose land this this area was on. I had to actually had to go look up the land that I grew up on um, back in the states and and have done so now because I, I didn't know whose it was. Right. Whose land um, would that be? Yeah. So um, the general um, a lot of Michigan uh, is the traditional land of the Ojibwe people, mm-hmm. um, and the area that I was born in, um, which is Saginaw, that is uh, part of the Chippewa. Um, Chippewa land. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Ann Arbor has been, every map I've seen of Ann Arbor has had some different listings uh, of, of how exactly to define whose, whose land it was. I think some of that has changed over time, um, but I could be wrong. I, uh, I'm still still trying to learn how to distinguish between, um, between whether this was a a change of, of nations' lands, or whether I'm looking at information about the name of, of one clan of, of a nation or, or not. So right. um, there's I still have a lot of learning to do. Mm-hmm. It's really cool that moving to a different place, you actually ended up learning things about the place that you're from. Um, it's that's Yeah, and that's kind of the nose-blind thing I was talking about earlier, right? right? Where I came here and I went, oh... <laughs> Oh, that racism! I can really smell that here. And then right. I look back at I look back at at where where I grew up, and I go, oh, oh, that was that had its own flavor of this back at home all mm-hmm. along. So that's been um, that's been really, really informative. You know, actually, I learned I learned just last month that there was um, a U.S. analog to a um, residential school not far from where I was born in the U.S., um, in Mm. Michigan. And, um, I don't, I don't really know the history of, of, uh, of day schools or, or so-called residential schools in the States, but, um, it's something that I think, particularly with the findings of the past couple years in Canada, we will hopefully start shedding much more light at a national level on in the States. And, And that's so necessary. Oh, yeah. We've talked about race. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask you how how has learning about you know the church's part in racial oppression mm. um, also has that enlightened anything else in your theology and your mm. thinking? Yeah. So um, I read a really wonderful book last summer by um, Willie James Jennings, who is um, a black theologian at Yale. believe he's at Yale. And um, this book was called The Christian Imagination. Mm -hmm. And the Christian imagination to which the the title of the book refers is um, the imposition and imagined concept of race that was applied to people through through the beginnings of the Spanish and Portuguese colonial projects and then spread um, throughout 
Western Europe at the time and, and, and ended up applying to, to almost all the colonial project, or definitely all the colonial project. And um, I've had to learn a lot about just the history. I think from a theology perspective, one of the things that that I've, I've had to learn about, in Christianity, there is a theological position called supersessionism. Super. Supersessionism. Sessionism. Sessionism. Um, and in this position, the, the church, which was founded um, on the, the work and the life of a Palestinian Jewish man named Jesus, um, the church sort of has blown up a metaphor of associating the church with Jesus's own people and has, has by doing so, by taking the place of within all of their metaphor and imagery of um, historic Israel, has turned themselves into the default people. And so if you're in the church, you're part of God's default people and everyone else is an other. And a lot of that was really present in the construction of race um, mm -hmm. from from the Western European perspective. So um, one of the one of the the great failures of the church in the last thousand years is forgetting that, particularly for for Europeans, is forgetting that as far as it pertains to being good people in standing with God, we're all starting from the same place of having a lot of work to do and needing to be reconciled with our creator. And when you forget that, you can really start to treat people in, you can start treating people like they aren't human. And you mm -hmm. can start creating theological reasons why that's okay to do. I think that's a lot of, I think that's a lot of what has created the horrible legacy of, of colonialism globally. So what I'm hearing is that there's, there's this belief um, among Christians that they are God's special people and it kind of creates an us and them kind of mm -hmm. mentality and so that othering um, of, of people who maybe believe differently mm -hmm. um, or look differently or are mm -hmm. different cultures that that has uh, fed into racism and colonialism mm -hmm. and, and the violence that follows is that yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not, I, I don't think it's, I think for most people, it's not present at the front of their mind. Mm -hmm. I think, I think it is, I think there are ways in which it's very natural for us to try and group people into us versus them. It, it can help navigate the world, make a little bit more sense, but, but ultimately it is not, it's not stemming from, from any real truth. And the ways, because it's not at the front of people's minds and, and, and we do it naturally, it can really work in insidious ways in our theology and when when our theology gets tied into gets tied up in and and starts seeking out power um and starts getting into bed with governments or even government educational systems you can those parts that seem forgettable and seem like they can be you know oh they're just in the back of the mind their their evil really starts to really starts to rear its head. I know that you are also interested in LGBTQ issues. Yes. Um, is this something that you want to touch on? And I think your understanding of that has also been informed by the discussion around race and the yeah. church, right? Yeah. So um, I would consider myself um, part of the queer community. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, 
to put it in a nutshell, um, I, I, I don't find that the word straight describes me super well. Mm -hmm. um, I would probably describe myself as biromantic, mm -hmm. um, which feels like a very sort of niche way of describing myself. But um, it's, I just don't find, I don't find a neat division of, of sort of straight and gay to be a very um, accurate one in describing humans. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think there are a lot of similarities between um, civil rights struggles in the U.S. and um, the struggles of, of members of the queer and trans communities. Um, and uh, I don't know if it's right to, to separate queer and trans communities as such. I, I just, I always struggle. I, I get the letters wrong. Uh, <laughs> There's so many letters <laughs> yeah, of the LGBTQIA alphabet gang. Um, <laughs> queer, queer and trans, I think if we understand the and as an inclusive and. Okay, yeah. You know, like, yeah, I don't yeah, wanna, I don't wanna further and... other with the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the language yeah. there. Um, you know, I've I've had to wrestle with that in my own theology because, mm -hmm. you know, the church is uh, church is kind of fucked up around around treatment of of this community as well. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think until until coming here to Vancouver, I took a wonderful course with um, with a professor named um, Wes Hill um, at Regent. He actually holds a more conservative theological position than I do on the issue, but he is such has such an open mind to the academic conversation around um, human sexuality and identity that in his class I was really able to work through um, work through my understanding of, of what is being addressed um, when scripture talks about sexuality and and how I understand my identity and in general human identities to find their rooting in God. I consider myself non-binary and the more I learned about how queer people have been treated in the church mm. and I've, I've found the theology quite restrictive mm. and personally that that was one of the reasons why I moved away from practicing Christianity and belief is, mm -hmm. is that it did not feel like it was giving me life mm. anymore at that point it felt like the opposite it felt like it was you know squeezing the life out of me in a situation like that, what, what is the value of holding on to maybe a religious institution or community that oftentimes might oppose mm. the existence of maybe queer people or mm. looking at history, you know, how the church has treated indigenous communities? What is the value of keeping that mm. relationship going? I think it's, for starters, important to remember that as f insofar as there is a, a, a relationship to value and, and to keep moving forward, um, that relationship is, is relationship with God. And uh, there's a scholar, Dallas Willard, um, who uh, I recently read an article of his where he was talking about how sad it is that sort of the, the, that the gospel message of the church has become this message of salvation when you die. So the, the gospel is that when you die, you're going to go to heaven because Jesus has died for you. That's something that the church believes. That's a, something that we're excited about. Mm -hmm. But the real crux of the gospel is that God deeply desires to be in deep and meaningful relationship with you here and now. And, and I think that when I, when I look at the history of, of the church, I don't see a lot of great stuff. There, there are... I mean, there are there are interesting arguments you could make about 
developments of democracy or developments of social programs, all those kind of things, fine, make those arguments all you want in your academic settings and in your buildings. But if you get if you get onto the ground with people around most of the world, their experience of what the church has done has been very negative. And a lot I, of awful things have been yes. done in the name of God or yeah. in the name of the church. Yeah. It, it has. And so I think I think you have to start questioning whether what you want to keep around is the church per se as uh, as a hierarchical institution that whose goal is to make all people sort of assent to a nominal Christianity or whether you can understand um, or whether there is a, a place for the church to be a group of people who are seeking after God and responding to the places where where God is working in our lives and um, in the the community that I'm part of right now um, Strathcona Vineyard um, which is which is a local church down here I think that that we are learning how to hold well the fact that we are striving to we're striving to know God we're striving to we're striving to build community to um, to worship together, to, um, to, to grow in who we are together, but also to seek justice for our neighbors and, and for our community. But, but we, know, we know we're not perfect. We know we're not going to be perfect. And we know that we come from a history that is far from perfect. And bearing those things in mind, we can, we can move together towards growing and learning from each other as God leads us. Um, there sometimes is a mentality that if the church doesn't show up in a neighborhood or, or there is no church in the neighborhood, then, then that place is going to go to hell or that, that place is, is lost or, you know, we, we, need, we need to bring a church here. I don't really think that's necessarily the case. I think, I think God works in people's lives. I think God's works in neighborhoods and through communities and different organizations. Um, but I do think that, that there is something special when people, when people gather together in, um, gather together in prayer, gather together in worship, gather together in, in seeking out God with one another. Um, the church does not have a monopoly. Oh, the church most certainly doesn't have a monopoly on God. Uh, the God, God is so much bigger than the church. I think it might be important to recognize that the, the fact that the church does not have monopoly on God doesn't mean that all things that someone could say about God are true, um, or that that means there's there's that God is ultimately unknowable, but I think it does mean that um, the church. I mean, in the words of I know, I know uh, this is this is going to be a problematic quotation from from both of them because both both Luther and Calvin's works led to some really really awful things. But one thing that they emphasized in the face of the um, absolute crushing of. Uh, the common people in Europe under the Catholic Church mm -hmm. uh, in their time was that the church should always be being reformed and should always be always be ready to listen to God's word of rebuke and and God's word of of correction in our lives. And as soon as you move past that, uh, yeah, you're you're probably lost. Uh, it's not there's I mean. I I think there's I think there's room for anyone to repent, but uh, but it's it's really hard to make. To, to turn around the ship when when you've created a monopoly on God, both listening to God, hearing from God, interpreting God. 
I mean, that's that's what half the Bible is, is prophets coming to the church and saying, dude, you guys, you, you guys got to get your shit together. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So you are part of Christian ministry in this neighborhood. Um, how, how do you make sense of um, the church having done so much, you know, harm in the history that we see in the neighborhood today, you know, like if we walk down the street, we're probably going to walk past some people who survived residential school. And mm-hmm. um, when so much harm has been done by the church, how, how do you justify, you know, the continued mm-hmm. presence of Christian ministry uh, in, in this community? Isn't it better to pull out, hmm. like step back? Well, for starters, I think there's a temptation. Um, I think there's a temptation around this topic to try and separate out the people who did these atrocities from the church per se and say, oh, well, you know, the the church was involved in residential schools, but the people who did these things, they weren't really Christians or they didn't really represent the church. And that's just wrong. Um, that you can't do that. That's passing the buck. Yeah, that's just passing the buck. It's just, you know, it's it just, it just makes you vulnerable to do the same thing in your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to do that. And I want to preface what I'm saying with, with I don't want to do that. Um, and, and hope that, that I'll be corrected if it sounds like I'm doing that. Um, I, I do think that um, what I've experienced the church community that I'm part of offering in this neighborhood is something that I haven't found anywhere else. Um, the um, participational invitation that I talked about early earlier mm-hmm. is is something really special, and that doesn't mean it's just restricted to churches. But I think that I think that where I have seen God pour out um, a really special amount of patience, um, a really special amount of grace and and capacity for forgiveness among people in our community. A lot of people come from places of, of deep wounding and conflict into healing. Um, but there there I mean there are also there's also wounding that happens when anyone gathers together in groups and, and so there there is wounding that happens in our community and, and we go through the same processes of hurting one another and and becoming reconciled with with one another that that anyone might in in any other community. I, I will say one of the things that I think is important to remember and that we've been learning a lot about in our church is that the peoples who lived on this land before you and I were here, um, they had their own relationship with God and their own relationship with our Creator, and um, I I believe that in in large majority of uh, of those cases they're, they're they're worshiping the same God and experiencing uh, similar relationships to God and so one of the ways in which we've found and experienced a lot of healing with our friends who are from First Nations backgrounds here is by celebrating the places where we can see that our relationships with God align and um, and so asking and empowering people within our community from those backgrounds, from those who have those perspectives of First Nations theologies and spiritualities to help lead our church and to help guide us, um, has been a really wonderful place of healing and education for us and has made a lot of inroads, not only in terms of, of healing relationships between the first people of this land and settlers, even in vast improvements in the internal lives of, of people like me who are settlers who, 
you know, I have really learned a lot about the value of living and working. There's a temptation to say slowly, but deliberately might be a better word, about rejecting a lot of the Western idolatry of consumerism. Even, even just from our food, I was talking to a friend yesterday and we were talking about the differences between some of the ways of preparing food that we've had from white way of preparing meat versus an indigenous way of preparing meat. And my friend said to me, he said, well, you don't need to, you don't need to put more on it than, than is already there, right? Like there's, mm -hmm. there's something to be enjoyed just about what you have. Whereas in, in my world or back home in the U.S., well, you cover everything with butter and cheese and salt and pepper, <laughs> right? It's, there's, there's, right. nothing is ever enough, mm -hmm. right? And so that's, I mean, that's been one of the ways in which I've really, I've really learned from our friends here has just been, well, what is enough for you? Can, can you be satisfied with just what God has given you in creation? And there's, there's a lot I've had to learn from that. I think personally for me, I'm not fully convinced um, participate in church, mm -hmm. but you would say there is something Christianity has to offer. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I think we've talked about this, you know, I'm a Christian universalist, so I'm not really too concerned about your, I think, I think God's got you covered either way. Um, <laughs> um, but I think there is something unique that the church has to offer in terms of um, having Jesus as, as, as a model and an, an active, I mean, it sounds crazy, but, but in terms of having Jesus as an active participant and friend alongside the stuff that we do. Um, yeah, it does. It does. It does. Yeah. I, I'm aware. <laughs> I'm aware. Um, I, it's, it's, um, it, it, I mean, ultimately our, our religion is, is founded upon the premise that someone was executed as a state criminal and came back to life. So once you accept that, the rest of it doesn't sound, you know, if you can get over that hurdle, uh, the, the rest of it's yeah. kind of like, oh, okay, all right. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but, but I think there is, I think there is something unique offered within a Christian perspective of relationality and the idea that God has, has called us to, to participate in God's own being, which all of the, all of the, early church theologians were writing about like crazy. Um, and so participation is, yeah, it's just a really important, a really important theme for me. And I think something that, um, I think something that in the West people are just longing for. I mean, it's such, we live in such a lonely city mm -hmm. and the antidote to feeling lonely, it's, it's going and participating and mm -hmm. making community and, and, and serving one another and taking relational risks with one another. And, um, uh, it's something that uh, that we've we've really lost in I can at least speak for in the US uh, and, and it would appear to be in Vancouver I can't speak for the rest of Canada mm -hmm. um, but but everything that I've seen in North America it is something that people are hungry for and uh, and that we really need to grow in that's it for the questions I've written down for great today. great <laughs> I, I, I guess I guess if I were to add anything I, I would say that, closing words? Yeah, in closing words, I talk a lot from from my heart and I present it very much from my brain. Mm -hmm. uh, it means that there are a lot of things that I get wrong because I'm putting them the way that I feel them, 
but they're communicated in a way such that I want them to sound very academic. So mm-hmm. they can sound really, sometimes I can sound like I say these things that I'm really, really not malleable on. Um, but I think I've got a lot to learn. I've been really thankful for just how patient everyone in this community has been with me. I've been thankful for your patience. Um, I've been thankful for even the patience of the, I mean, maybe especially the patience of the people that I live with. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, I'm excited to listen to this, you know, maybe five years down the road and be like, oh man, Noah, you were, what a place <laughs> you were in. Um, well, thanks so much for, uh, thanks so much for having me to my basement today. Oh, yeah, you're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you yeah. for being up for this. Yeah. Thank you for being my friend and neighbor. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions, please reach out to me via email. I do really want to hear from you. And in the meantime, take good care of each other. Goodbye for now.